Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman. Imagination is one of the most important elements of being human, but it is most often assumed we know what it is while rarely being analyzed. Here with me today is Jonathan Erickson to discuss his recent book, Imagination in the Western Psyche, From Ancient Greece to Modern Neuroscience. The book looks at various theories of imagination through history and then looks at what neuroscience can tell us about the functioning of imagination, as well as looking at the functioning of imagination and what it can tell us about neuroscience. Erickson is a writer and educator and holds a BA in English literature from UC Berkeley and a PhD in depth psychology from the Pacifica Graduate Institute in California. Jonathan Erickson, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. So just kind of as an introduction, can you kind of introduce yourself to listeners and tell us what your kind of main areas of research are? Uh, sure. Well, as as you just mentioned, my PhD is in depth psychology. There was an emphasis in uh, somatic studies, mind mind body stuff in the program, and uh, that involved looking at a lot of uh, neuroscience and trying to bridge what what is a very qualitative field, depth psychology, with what we're learning about um, the body from a neuroscientific perspective and how mind and body are are integrated. So uh, it was it was following that course that led me to this fascination with. Um, the experience of imagination, which is very central to depth psychology, and how that lines up with what we currently know about uh, neuroscience and the neuroscience of imagination and where the gaps are and how we might start to bring these two ways of uh, looking at imagination together. Yeah, that really came through really well in the book. Um, So to begin... A lot of analytic study of imagination uses what you call kind of a propositional model, whereas you prefer one about generating meaningful images. Can you kind of unpack these two approaches to imagination and why you prefer the latter? Yeah, uh, well, the reason I prefer the latter is I'm just oriented towards depth psychology, and and the latter is definitely a a depth psychological approach. Um, This idea of a propositional imagination is something that comes out of uh, cognitive science. And that whole project is about looking at the brain as uh, like a computer system and understanding the way our minds work, uh, using the computer as a model for understanding our minds as, as computational systems. I'm, I'm being a little reductive in talking about that, but that's the basic idea. And so in that tradition, you'll see a lot of uh, mental phenomenon um, sort of reduced to, to more simple processes. So in this case, For imagination, in the propositional imagination, there's a lot of focus in cognitive science on um, the process of a mind trying to game out what's going to happen in the future. So uh, what happens if I go to the park? What will I see? What happens if I skip work today? What will happen to me? Those sorts of things. And so uh, in that case, you have a a proposition, something that uh, may happen, and then trying to imagine the consequences, which is a very pragmatic, practical thing to do. Um, And it's important to understand that mental process for sure. So I'm not uh, putting down the study of that mental phenomenon. But 
uh, I find it uh, too reductive to totally encapsulate the phenomenon of human imagination, which is a much more rich and, and complex um, experience that we have, this ability that we have to uh, imagine uh, not just um, the outcomes of possible future choices, but to, to imagine ourselves as different people, to imagine different worlds, to, um, to imagine uh, all sorts of, of uh, fictions and, and stories that, that don't exist, or to envision uh, different ways that humanity might find uh, the way out of the various messes that we're in. It, it seems to me that imagination is... Um, just rich and broad and, and in many ways mysterious in the number of things that it makes available to us. And to take all of that and just reduce it to one aspect of itself, which is the what if question. Um, it's, it's just too reductive is, is the simple answer. And I, I wanted to, to approach this phenomenon in a way that really honored its complexity and the complexity that it's, um, that has been recognized, uh, particularly in the humanities over the centuries as people have tried to understand what imagination is. Yeah, great. So in introducing us to your thinking about imagination, you give us three terms, the first two being imagination as the phenomena itself and imaginary as the thing that pertains to the imagination. Um, but then you have a third, the imaginal. Um, you define it as an intermediary experiential space between physical reality and mental abstraction. Can you kind of unpack this for us a little bit? Yeah. So the, the problem with uh, stopping at the word imaginary is that it has this connotation, particularly going into the 20th century, that um, of, of something being unreal, right? That if, if we're, if something is imaginary, if you have an imaginary friend, well, that's, that's not really uh, a real thing. That's just this unreal thing that you're engaging with. It's just a fantasy. Excuse me. Whereas in uh, in depth psychology, uh, starting with Jung, there's this idea that events that happen in the psyche are real psychic events. They are ontologically real in the sense that something is happening that we're experiencing that is meaningful to us, even though it isn't happening in the physical sense. So uh, qualitatively different, but still ontologically real, a kind of reality, this psychic reality that we engage with whenever we're looking within and experiencing our own subjective experience, that that subjectivity has a, a level of reality to it. You're definitely having the feeling. You're definitely uh, imagining the story. Uh, it's just that those things aren't physically real, right? They don't exist out in the world as material events. So this idea of the imaginal is taking that idea into the realm of imagination, that if something is happening in imagination, that is meaningful, uh, we want to allow it to have some degree of psychic reality, some degree of ontological reality. And in order to do so, we have this new word, the imaginal. Uh, an imaginal experience is an experience you have engaging in the imagination, uh, engaging with your own psyche through imagination. And uh, by using that word instead of imaginary, we take a stand for the importance of some of these inner events that we can have. You can have a, a dream, for example, that's incredibly meaningful to you or that brings a, a lot of insight or a new way of thinking about yourself or the world. Or there's um, wonderful uh, documentation of people who've had solutions to problems showing up in their dreams. Well, so what is the dream? It's not... Uh, I mean, we can we can debate about the, the physicality of what's happening in the brain on the, you know, the 
purely physiological level, but on an experiential level, you're having an experience of this dream, of, of these images, of this insight coming through and engaging with you in a way that touches you or changes you or transforms you. So we call that a, an imaginal event, an event that is of the imagination, but has a reality all its own. Is that, a, is that enough of a distinction for you? I could probably go on about it. No, that's actually really helpful. Um, so the approach or kind of method you employ throughout the book, you call it model agnosticism. What is that? Yeah, model agnosticism is um, doesn't come from depth psychology, although it, it, it does have some parallels with, uh, with Kant and, and with Jung in a particular worldview. And it's it's an idea, it's a stance that that is somewhat skeptical of our ability to ever fully grasp what's going on around us completely. Rather, we as human beings in our attempts to understand the world create these models of reality as a kind of map to help us understand what's going on out there. And so a, a map is a great example, right? If you're engaging in new terrain, you might sketch out a preliminary map to uh, help you understand what's what's out there in the landscape. Um, now, as uh, uh, Alfred Krozybski famously said, the, the map is not the territory, but it's uh, useful to us to have the map if it's relatively accurate. So the idea with model agnosticism is we have all of these mental maps about what the world is, how it works, and uh, all of those maps that we've created, all those models we've created, have a certain amount of usefulness, right? Uh, they're useful as long as they allow us to engage with the world in a, in a meaningful and productive way. But uh, we also have to be willing to take a step back and realize that they are just models. They're not reality itself. And sometimes our models need to be revised. And what I like about this perspective is it, it allows a lot of different things to be true, but just in different ways. So rather than getting into a, um, a conflict, for example, between uh, whether a, a strictly, uh, you know, cognitive neuroscience approach to the mind is, is quote unquote correct versus a, a more qualitative depth psychological approach, uh, we can just view them as two different models of the mind that are useful in different circumstances. Right, a depth psychological approach might be much more helpful in a psychotherapeutic setting where someone is really struggling with trying to find purpose in life, whereas uh, the cognitive neuroscience approach uh, might be more helpful um, in terms of basic uh, habit changes. For example, how do we actually um, get ourselves to uh, employ different habits? So the the point of employing this is is to allow for more possibilities and to allow for each possibility to have its own use within a certain context without having to say that it is absolutely true uh, in all contexts. It comes out of um, things that have happened in physics over the last century, where we'll have a, a model of light, for example, light as a wave. This is the, the classic you know, conundrum from, from early quantum physics. We have a model of, of light as a wave. We have a model of light as a particle. But the more we study light, the more we realize that actually light doesn't completely fit into one model or the other. Sometimes it fits one model, sometimes it fits the other model. So by taking a model agnostic approach, we're able to allow for these multiple models of light to understand that the phenomenon of light is something that's even more complex than the models we're employing to understand it, uh, and yet still able to use the models in a meaningful way to help us better understand the world. So it's... Um, it's a way of 
of fully engaging with uh, a way of looking at the world and everything it has to offer us without necessarily having to then accept that this is the the sole and only truth, the only way of looking. Yeah, it's very pragmatic. Um, so kind of moving on, you uh, start kind of looking at how to study the brain. Um, you give this really interesting little example. You write, a hundred ants on a flat surface will wander randomly until they die, but a million ants becomes a kind of super organism exhibiting sophisticated behaviors that the study of any individual ant could never predict. So jumping off that, you talk about the importance of having sufficiently complex models of brains to really understand them. Can you kind of unpack uh, how complexity works or should work in neuroscience? Well, um, I want to be careful of, of the should. I don't. Uh, I don't want to tell the neuroscience sure, yeah. what to do. Um, well, so just how to like avoid reduc- reductive models of brains. I guess would be a way to sure. Put it. I, I guess what I want to say is that the there's a reductive approach to the brain, which is useful to a point, right? You call it. You call that a model too. We can employ a, a, a reductive model of brain uh, science that really just wants to get down and look at the individual pieces and how they're interacting. And that's very valuable in itself, right? We learn all sorts of things. We learn uh, about the, the micro architecture of, of the brain, and there's always uh, valuable new information coming out of that. So I'm certainly not suggesting that that's wrong or bad or that we shouldn't do that. But there's this other thing that's happened uh, in the last few decades, this emergence of uh, complexity science, of uh complex systems, self-adapting complex systems. And the thing about the discovery of this, it, it, we're actually able to map these things out as natural phenomena. That's uh, that's what's so extraordinary about it. Is so, For example, with the ants, uh, we'll, we'll, we see insect colonies as a complex system where the individual ants or the individual insects, uh, there's nothing in the individual that would ever be able to predict what the superorganism is going to do once it starts interacting with itself. So if you have just a bunch of ants wandering around, they're just going to wander around until they die. There's nothing in the individual ants that's going to be predictive of what the complex whole will do. But if you have a million ants, it's going to start to exhibit behaviors that are more than the sum of its parts, essentially. Uh, Really extraordinary. And my understanding is that we're still in a, a process uh, academically and, and culturally of wrestling with, with what this means, <laughs> uh, what it, what it means to our, our worldviews. So there are um, a number of, of systems that have been recognized as uh, having what, uh, what are called emergent properties like this, right? Properties where what emerges is more than the sum of its parts, essentially. Insect colonies are one, economies are another, uh, weather patterns are, are, weather is considered a complex system. Uh, and the, the human immune system is a complex system, and the human brain and nervous system is also a complex system. So this is, um, I mean, I, I, I don't say this often, but this is kind of just the way it is. We, we have these incredibly complex brains with all of these interacting parts. And so we have these emergent uh, properties of brains that only show up at higher levels of interaction. And no amount of just studying the neurons and the interactions of neurons and the interactions of, uh, uh, of chemicals and, and, and hormones and neurotransmitters, um, none of that on its own will be able to predict the, the global outcome of such a complex system. Now, again, it's still very important to understand how those smaller pieces work, 
But the mistake happens when we get so far into a reductionist mindset, which was, you know, very dominant in the 20th century. We get so far into a reductionist mindset that we think we can explain absolutely everything at this more granular level. And we've forgotten that actually all these granular pieces are going to come together in ways that, that we're probably going to be trying to understand for you know decades, if not centuries to come. Yeah, so from here, you actually start a really interesting history of imagination. Um, kind of at the start, you follow uh, Yuval Harari in arguing that there was a sort of cognitive revolution around 40,000 years ago. What happened here and how did it give way to what we might recognize as something resembling imaginative potential? So Yuval Harari uh, uh, has written a, a wonderful, uh, very, very provocative book. He's a he's a historian, uh, yeah. and his book is Sapiens, uh, right? Sapiens. Yeah. And yeah. The, the central premise of the book is that what what set humans apart as a species. Uh, apart from uh, many other intelligent species on this planet who who exhibit you know the the beginnings of uh, of culture and a certain kind of language and and various complex behaviors, what set us apart, according to his theory, is that we started to be able uh, to create and share fictional realities with each other. We started to be able to share fictions, and he uses a very broad uh, understanding of of fiction that can be a little challenging to some people. He includes uh, money, for example. That's that's my favorite one to start with. The money is a fiction because money doesn't actually exist in the world in the sense that uh, there is no inherent uh, physical value, even to gold, right? We, we uh, have assigned a value to gold, right? A certain amount, a certain weight of gold has a certain value, but that's only because of something that's happening inside of us. We're all agreeing to imagine that gold is more valuable than granite. We trust and that. And for that reason, we're able to then employ this imaginary substance called money, and it's actually completely reshaped all of our lives, right? So this is another example of how something that is imaginary also certainly has reality. It just doesn't have uh, uh, an ultimately physical reality. It's a reality that is rooted in the mind. So uh, he goes on about all the different things that fall into this category. And it's really most of, most of human culture and society uh, are things that really only exist because we agree to imagine them together. Uh, government, for example, I mean, hierarchies, uh, uh, all sorts of, of systems uh, that we engage with on a daily basis are, are there, not because they have uh, been there in the world physically emerging from nature they exist because we as humans have created them and agreed to believe in them together so uh, i think this is a uh, as i said you know it's 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 provocative and it it really challenges us to think about what um what do we believe is is real and what do we think is important and what are we giving meaning to uh both individually and as a society um it, it was certainly a, a helpful perspective to me in, in my own research and thinking about the role that imagination has has played. Uh, the idea that we are all, um, to some extent, whether we know it or not, and this is something I get into towards the end of the book, uh, we are all imagining the world together in many respects, not in all respects, but in, in many of them. Yeah, um, so moving forward, kind of more explicit theories of imagination start to kind of 
be developed. You start with uh, Plato and Aristotle on this, and they had a theory of Fantasia. Uh, you connect it with other things like image making, appearance, mimesis, and coming to light. Can you kind of unpack what their thoughts of imagination were? Um, I, well, I can try. Uh, the the so the Greek there is no word for um, if, if we go back and look at where the words come from. The the word imagination uh, comes from uh, the Middle Ages, imaginatio. Um, I believe I believe we get that word from Augustine. Uh, if we go further back to the discourse on imagination, we have this Greek word, uh, which I believe is pronounced fantasia, and you, you see the clear link to the word, the English word fantasy, right? And uh, fantasia is uh, its etymological roots are around appearances, and the discourse around uh, fantasia is is a discourse around the way things appear, uh, and and the questions about what is real. And how do we engage with the appearances of reality? So uh, Plato, it's interesting because Plato sometimes gets a, a, he has a a reputation for being against um, art and artists and and creativity because he famously suggested in the Republic that the the artists should all be cast out because they were troublemakers. And what he's getting at with that is he he has a uh, Plato has a, a vision of reality in which there's this there's this sort of divine perfect realm, right? The the, the Platonic uh, ideal. Uh, there are these ideal forms, and our reality is just a, a sort of a shadow of that divine realm. Uh, we're we're sort of a pale uh, a pale reflection of that divine realm. And so, in his mind, for an artist to then make a piece of art that simply imitates the world is uh, it's like making a a copy of a copy, right? It's a photocopy of a photocopy. It's, it's sending attention in the wrong direction. Whereas Plato wanted us all to, to go within and, and realize this sort of internal uh, platonic uh, realm of ideas. The, the artist in his view was taking us more into the mundane, this world of false appearances. And that was why he wanted the artists cast out of the Republic. He felt that they, uh, it, it was a, it was a bad value system, uh, kind of for, for spiritual reasons, uh, more than anything else. That said though, there are other places where Plato has a very different view of imagination and that's where he sees imagination as actually coming from the divine, uh, where he sees image as being, a uh, a conduit from the gods that that we can receive images from the gods, and in that reception, in that connection with the divine, um, well, that's that's all great. That's beautiful. That's you know, uh, that's a beautiful process uh, for Plato to to use image as sort of a bridge between the um, the mundane world and the, the the divine world. He also said that uh, artists were the place, the the true calling of the artist, if I understand him correctly, was that uh, the artist was meant to express the glory of the gods and the glory of the heroes. And that as long as an artist was doing that, then there was, you know, that, then there was room for them in, in the ideal society. So Aristotle, the rebellious pupil to Plato had a, just a completely different worldview his worldview was much more focused on on the senses and on empiricism, and for this reason, he's often called the the grandfather of empirical science. And for him, 
truth is not in this ideal realm. Truth is in the world and we're going to find it by paying attention to uh, what our senses tell us. And for, uh, for Aristotle, then what imagination becomes is a, a conduit, uh, a psychological function between the world of sensation and the world of pure intellect. Um, maybe world is the wrong uh, word because he's, he's talking about psychological capacities. So he's the one that first gives us this idea of imagination as a psychological uh, faculty. And it's the faculty that allows us to move in between pure abstraction of our thoughts and then the, the gritty sensory reality of our senses, that, that imagination is sort of like the, the go-between, the messenger that allows us to, uh, to make connections between those two worlds. Yeah, so one of the other kind of origins for uh, imagination that you pick up is actually in Hebrew culture, particularly with some of the older scriptures. And you do this really interesting reading of the story of the forbidden fruit, um, and the tree of knowledge. And you kind of show how for them, imagination was connected with other questions of like free will and temptation. Can you kind of unpack what these scriptures tell us about imagination in their view? Yeah. So my, my understanding of this is, uh, in, in the Hebrew tradition, which is the other, uh, you know, deep root of, of the Western psyche, we have this idea of, um, the Hebrew word is yetzer, that's the closest we get to imagination in, in those texts. And what Yetzer is about is um, it, it's kind of, um, it has implications around action and, and creativity and will and choice. So there's a, there's a good Yetzer and a bad Yetzer, essentially. And the good Yetzer, the, the good creative spark, is the spark that's in alignment with the divine will. So uh, a little bit uh, uh similar to, to Plato, but maybe um, with a bit more of a moralistic tone. The, the good Yetzer has us uh, creating in accordance with God, whereas the bad Yetzer is the, the voice of temptation, which uh, basically drives us to sin. And the, the things we create that are outside of the divine will are, are the path to sin and destruction. So the, in that tradition, the, the whole idea of creativity and imagination at that point feels very wrapped up in a, a morality of going along with God's plan or disobeying it. Yeah, so the seeds that have kind of been planted in both Greek and Hebrew thought start to become kind of picked up and reanimated in the Middle Ages uh, with Augustine in the Christian tradition, Jewish rabbis, Islamic imams. Um, so how in the Middle Ages were these ideas around imagination kind of being picked up again in various ways? I know that's well, a big question, but... Yeah, the, um, so the, the church fathers during that time were uh, very... They were... Part of their scholarship was looking at the ancient Greeks, looking at uh, the philosophy of um, mostly Aristotle, but but Plato in some cases as well, and uh, making sense of that either in in the sense of incorporating it into their theology or or making uh, distinctions, uh, and it's a it's not a time where there were a lot of revolutionary new ideas about about imagination emerging. Let me, let me put it that way. Um, there was uh, there was a sense of a continuation of this idea that 
you could have a divine vision. It was possible, but there was a lot of concern about um, the idea that imagination could lead a person astray. And I don't know that it was, um, there wasn't as much psychological emphasis. There was more worry about things like magic, about uh, demonic possession. Um, This idea that, you know, there were these forces in the world that were manipulating human beings towards good or, or evil. Uh, and so it, it was certainly possible during this time to, to have a dream and believe that it came from God, uh, and to follow that dream, uh, or that vision. But there was also danger of, um, committing heresy, essentially, if, uh, if you saw something that, you know, you, you weren't supposed to see or wasn't in alignment with uh, the, the church's understanding of what, what was true and real and good. Um, you know, it's not really until we get to the, the Renaissance where that all starts to open up. And I don't, I don't know if that's your next question. Is it? Yeah, I was going to ask about um, you. The term was not coined in the Renaissance, but it is well known for Renaissance men kind of in retrospect or retroactively. Um, So looking at using that term just kind of as a starting point, what kind of jumping off the skepticism towards imagination from the Middle Ages, what does the cultivation of Renaissance men and more individualistic artists um and thinkers and poets, what does that kind of tell us about ideas about imagination in the Renaissance? Well, let me just back up a little bit um, to bridge your last question with this one. One of the things that was happening in the Renaissance, part of what made it such a, uh, a fruitful generative time is that there was a, a, a new openness to some ancient texts uh, coming in and uh, sort of cross-pollinating texts from other cultures. So there was a resurgence of of Greek myth. Uh, There was a renewed interest in uh, uh, Islamic viewpoints. Um, There was this this great sort of cultural um, moment of of these different traditions coming together and uh, an awakening of new possibilities. And that goes part and parcel with an awakening of imagination, right? As new possibilities emerge, we're suddenly imagining ourselves in new ways. We're imagining human potential in new ways. Um, and an interesting aside, uh, the, this phrase Occam's razor, which is, uh, you know, a, a common trope around the taking a more reductive view in the sciences, uh, Occam, <laughs> uh, the idea of Occam's razor is the simplest solution is uh, usually the best. Sometimes it's interpreted to mean it's always the best. Uh, now Occam is a, a Renaissance figure. And what he was actually talking about was um, that there was, there were too many different religious ideas coming into the church. There, there was too much uh, Greek religion essentially awakening in the church. And what, what he was saying is, well, we don't, we don't need all of these other deities. We don't need all these, all these Greek gods. We don't need all these myths. We just need the one God. So he was really uh, putting forward a kind of religious fundamentalism. It's it's so ironic that 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 perspective would then become this sort of um, emblem of, of the reductive move in, in science. Uh, 
I bring that up because I think fundamentalism, you know, whether it's in, in religion or science, often tries to push us back towards um, something simple and easily understandable. Whereas in these times in history where imagination has started to open up, all of a sudden, so much more seems possible. We're imagining all these different possibilities. We're imagining all these different gods, right? Which from a a depth psychological perspective is uh, imagining so many different potentials in ourselves as personified by these these gods and and goddesses and um, these, these different cultural perspectives on what divinity might be. So during this time, to get to, to your next question, we have this idea of uh, the dignity of man becoming very important and the, the possibility of the individual um, uh, really uh, fulfilling a creative potential in a lot of different areas at once. Um, and, you know, to some degree, you saw this back in, in ancient Greece too, but it, it wasn't, uh, it was an idea that had been gone for quite a while in the Middle Ages, this idea of of, a, of an individual really excelling themselves across multiple fields uh, and uh, growing in many different directions and becoming a really sort of well-rounded, more, more holistic, if you will, human being. That's, that's obviously a more 21st century word, but uh, I, think, I think it applies in this case. And so there was a tremendous uh, renewal in, in the arts, in, in creative expression, in uh, philosophy of ideas. And, and a lot of this just comes out of the fact that uh, so much more was possible now because we'd, we'd broken out of the rigid structures of what was and was not allowed. And uh, we were able to allow new possibilities to come in and inspire us and to start to imagine our, ourselves and the world differently. Yeah, so kind of following along that line, but skipping ahead a little, um, you go to uh, later on Nietzsche and Freud, who you talk about in terms of uh, rationalization. Um, what role did rationalization play in their thinking around subjectivity and imagination? Well, uh, so just just to be clear, I don't know that Nietzsche ever talked about rationalization i think that that comes out of um, not, not as a term but i know it comes psychology it, it feels kind of in the background like genealogy of morals like he's kind of thinking along similar lines well, i think he was very interested in uh in rationality and its limits for sure and that's right. um that's part of why I, I begin my chapter on depth psychology with nietzsche it's actually walter kaufman i think who said that uh Nietzsche was the first great depth psychologist, even though we don't usually think of him as a psychologist. He actually did sometimes refer to himself as a psychologist because he was he was trying to diagnose the human soul. And, uh, the, uh, of course, psychology uh, comes from psyche, the Greek word for soul. So he, he was he was in that area, although we have a much more clinical perspective on what psychology is supposed to be at, at this point in history. Anyway, Nietzsche was the one who really... Uh, passionately made the case that there's so much more going on inside of us than our high-minded rationality, that uh, so much of our, uh, the, the surface of what we present to the world and our, um, our supposedly um, always, always well-measured and, and thoughtful and, and rational uh, decision-making processes are, uh, that, that's, that's the surface of a much more complex uh, set of, of, um, of drives and, and energies within us, and that we are we are driven by all sorts of primal forces essentially, and that the the rationality is a 
sort of a covering for that. Um, this had a tremendous impact on Freud. Freud, um, Freud, Freud and Jung actually were both deeply, deeply influenced by Nietzsche. Uh, Freud took this idea and, and put it into a psychological system, essentially. And Freud was one who was actually doing work with uh, clients, right, or, or patients, which is how we think of psychology today. Uh, and I, I don't, I actually don't recall in the moment if, if the idea of rationalization comes from Freud, it might, uh, sounds like something he would have talked about, but the, the idea with rationalization is that we, we do something for a, essentially a purely emotional reason. And then we come up with a rational explanation after the fact we say, Oh, of course I, I did this for all of these rational reasons. But actually that's, uh, that's a story we're telling ourselves to, uh, to make sense of the fact that we we've done something that was purely emotionally driven. And it gets into this idea that we have this unconscious self, this un, this unconscious aspect to our being. Uh, and, and that it is from that unconscious aspect that a great deal of our behavior actually emerges. And that consciousness is um, a, a much smaller piece of, of what we are. And so this is a, this is an important set up for what Jung later uh, develops in his psychology, because Jungian psychology is all about engagement uh, with the unconscious through images. For Jung, image was the bridge to the unconscious, and thus image was the bridge towards self-knowledge. I might be getting ahead of uh, your questions here a little bit, so I'll I'll pass it back to you. Oh, yeah, no worries. Um, Yeah, speaking of Jung, you actually connect Jung in addition to Nietzsche and Freud, you also argue that he's picking up uh, Kant. Um, Kant kind of had his own Copernican revolution in epistemology, which then gets picked up and developed by Jung. So first, what was the move that Kant made and how uh, for Jung was it kind of a forebear to modern psychology in his view? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jung, uh, Jung made several statements along the lines of of, of considering himself a Kantian, that he was a, he was a Kantian philosopher. He, he followed Kant's philosophy first and, and foremost. Um, Kant, Kant is, of course, a very complex thinker who wrote volumes, so I, I won't try to, to summarize him in a couple of minutes. But the, right. the main idea here uh, from a psychological perspective is that he's the one who, the, the so-called Copernican revolution in philosophy, which, which I believe is a term that he himself used to describe what he was suggesting. He did. Is, yeah. Is that, uh, rather than, um, rather than us seeing the world as it is, he posited that we see the world, uh, based on the structure of our minds, that our minds are structured in a certain way. And because of the structure of our minds being that way, we perceive reality to be a certain way. And that whatever reality actually is beyond that structuring of our minds, well, that's, that's the, the thing in itself, right? The, the, the noumenon, the, 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 the sort of untouchable and unknowable that we can only know through this filtering process of our, of our minds. So he talked about, for example, uh, causality. Uh, the, these a priori capacities that we have, uh, these, these a, a priori uh, ways of engagement with the world, uh, time, time, causality, and, and so on. And so th- this was, um, it, it was revolutionary because it, it took the, uh, the idea of truth uh, in the world and said, you know what, maybe, maybe we can never actually know that in the ultimate sense. 
what we what we can know is how the human mind apprehends reality and uh, shift our focus to that. So this was profoundly influential to Jung in the development of his psychology. Uh, Jung was very interested, for example, in this idea of projection, the degree to which we're constantly projecting aspects of, of ourselves and our inner world out onto the outer world. We're making all sorts of assumptions about what's out there based on what's inside of us, which is a, a very Kantian uh, framework. Perhaps more importantly, Jung's idea of archetypes, uh, this idea that there are these um, foundational patterns of being, which that's what my understanding of a of an archetype is. It's a it's a foundational pattern of being or a foundational pattern of human experience. Um, that these were another kind of of a priori structure of the human psyche. Uh, these archetypal structures of of what a human being can be, what a human being can experience, are uh, deeply ingrained within us and get activated in various ways in the course of our existence. And that we experience uh, the world through these archetypal patterns. So in some ways, uh, Jung's psychology of archetypes was a, a, a great expansion of Kant's a priori categories uh, in terms of the way we're able to experience the world, the, the, the psychological structures through which the world becomes known to us and becomes meaningful to us. Yeah, you quote, kind of following along with that, um, you quote Jung, who wrote that image is the meaning itself. Um, in this, you kind of connect with things like images and signs versus symbols, archetypes and primordial images, uh, passive versus active imagination and so on. Can you kind of unpack Jung's theory of like images and signs? Um, and what does it mean to say that images themselves are the meaning of things? Uh, boy, that's a lot of different questions <laughs> you can pick one and just go wherever you want to go sure so um well starting with the idea that image image has meaning in itself um jung jung believes and i i agree i, I think it's uh i think it's experientially self-evident uh although many people have um perhaps been educated otherwise to, to think otherwise that when when an image presents itself uh, it 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 presents its own meaning on a couple of different levels, um, and I want to be careful about this because I'm not suggesting that that uh, an image necessarily has some sort of encoded linguistic meaning in it that's always going to be the same for everyone. That's that's not it. Um, it's it's rather that the image itself. I mean, let's just say it contains information, if nothing else, right? If you have a an image of a of an apple hanging from a tree and a woman reaching for it. Well, there's, there's all sorts of information encoded in that image and it's perfectly possible to uh, apprehend that meaning without having to use words at all. Right. We, we have this capacity to see images in the world and make meaning of them as containing information that isn't necessarily linguistic. So one of the things Jung was trying to do was recenter our understanding of the meaning of images and allow an image that emerges from the unconscious in a dream, for example, or in a, a fantasy, uh, to allow that image to be a, a, a container for its own meaning, first and foremost, without immediately trying to reduce it to a linguistic analysis. 
which is, uh, for example, that's that's what you see happening in the the propositional imagination that you asked me about at the beginning of this conversation, where you can talk about propositional imagination, these what if scenarios, without thinking about images at all. You don't need an image to ask if I go to the park, you know, will I find a quarter on the ground? Maybe you think of those images, right? Maybe you imagine the quarter. Maybe you don't. Uh, you can think about that in purely linguistic terms. And what Jung wanted to do was stop trying to get away from this tendency we have to reduce imaginal experience to purely linguistic experience, and rather to really attend to the image itself and all of the different kinds of meanings that can emerge from that image. Now, some of those meanings will be linguistic, right? If you if you look at the, uh, say, this, this image I was uh, using as an example, a uh, apple growing from a tree, a woman reaching for it. Well, for, for many of us raised in Western culture, that's going to evoke uh, the, the Old Testament of the Bible and Eve reaching for the forbidden fruit. And then all of the associations that we have with uh, that whole religious tradition, uh, both positive and negative. So all of that meaning is, is, um, is bursting in that image. And there are a lot of different levels of meaning we can get from that image as well. There, there's emotional meaning, there's uh, spiritual meaning, there's, and, you know, many levels of analysis can go on and that will start to take us into language. But Jung wanted us to be able to engage with our images as, um, uh, as, as meaning containing and irreducible first and foremost, and to allow any sort of linguistic analysis or interpretation as a secondary process. So that's one small piece of what you asked me, but there was more to the question. Can you, can you oh, say what else was in yeah. I mean, I was mostly interested in kind of the nature of images. I was maybe kind of adding a little too much, but uh, we no, can move on. Important. It was just a lot to, to try to answer all at once. Yeah, no, that's that's fine. Um, I, I, will Jung, say, you... I, I will say um, also that, that part of why this was so important to Jung is that for Jung, he, he felt that image was uh, was the most direct bridge to engaging with the unconscious. Uh, that... Right that uh, if we want to engage with this vast unknown aspect of ourselves and we go into uh, either a, you know, a, 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 a reverie and, and start to pay attention to our fantasies or go, engage in a process he called active imagination, where we're actively inviting these images to come or whether it's in a dream, uh, he felt that, that these images that emerge from the unconscious, um, that engaging with them and, and making sense with them and even uh, befriending them in a sense, relating to them, that this was the road to, uh, to self-awareness and, uh, and to basically adult psychological development. He had a, a process of adult psychological development he called individuation, where we become more fully ourselves by engagement with the unconscious and for him, that proceeded largely through engagement with the images that emerged from the unconscious mind. So for Jung, image really was uh, absolutely essential to his psychology. Yeah, kind of picking up, um, you, you mentioned individuation. And the next person you really discuss is James Hillman. Um, and with him, the term is soul making, but you kind of there seems to be kind of a lot of parallels in there. Um, you write that Hillman took Jung's notion that images psyche to its logical conclusion, insisting on a psychology that was born out of imagination that was expressed and understood primarily as a mythopoetic discourse. Um, can you kind of unpack what 
this means and how individuation and soul making work. Yeah. Wow. Um, so I can, again, I can try it. Maybe just yeah, narrow Hillman, it down to like, in terms of images. Yeah. Hillman, um, Hillman is a, Hillman is a, a challenging figure. And I, I'll tell you the, the first time I read his seminal work, Revisioning Psychology, I was just baffled and kind of infuriated. <laughs> uh, but, the, but then it was, been it was there. The, second time, the second time reading it, I, 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 I was really astounded when I realized what it was he was actually trying to do and the degree to which he was really pushing back against a lot of deeply ingrained habits in, uh, in uh, Western intellectual tradition. Uh, so you can take, for example, the, the fact that he takes the idea of individuation and moves it over to this other language he starts talking about it as soul making so as i as i just said individuation in in jungian framework uh it's about a process of of self-discovery and self-development becoming who we truly are as individuals through engaging with the unconscious and and integrating the the unconscious aspects of our being so uh james hillman takes this and moves it into this new territory. He calls it soul making, which in itself is, it's a very different kind of language, right? Whereas individuation sounds very intellectual and technical. Soul making is, uh, is deliberately using language, which is very poetic, right? Uh, it's, it's language that wants us to imagine what the soul might be and how we might make our own souls. It, it takes us out of this, um, this more, Mm, reductive, analytical, technical language that psychology has been couched in really, you know, forever, and and wants us to move into a, a way of talking about psychology, which um, is almost literary, right? That we, we talk about the psyche, uh, the way we might discuss a, a, a poem or, or a work of, of literature, uh, because and this is what I meant when I said that, that Hillman was taking Jung's idea of image as psyche to its logical conclusion. If, if images really are the bedrock of the unconscious mind and if engagement with image is uh, at, the, at the core of, of how we both become more fully ourselves and how we heal from our psychological wounds and so on, then shouldn't we take the whole project of psychology into a more mythopoetic place and, and start to engage with it in a, in a way w- which is much more openly about engagement with imagination, with literature, with image, with fantasy, and, and stop being so damn technical about the whole thing. Yeah, so it's kind of like a pragmatic, more spiritual approach, it seems, um, at least from what I'm picking up from it. Uh, sure. I mean, and you know, I don't, I, I have never been able to understand where, uh, where James Hillman's beliefs lay as far as things like spirituality and religion. Uh, it, it's confusing, you know, at some point it, it seems like he's very open, uh, to, to that whole world. And at other times he, he, he doesn't seem open to it at all. What, what he's really getting at, uh, is, it's actually a little bit more like a radicalized view of, of that original Aristotelian idea of, of, uh, of imagination as this intermediary between sensation and intellect, uh, where, and, and also you see echoes of it in, in Harari's idea too, that, that so much human experience and culture is what we've chosen to imagine together. Uh, James Hillman saying that our, our psyches are, are made of imagination our our ourselves our world it's it's all made of images 
And if we can recognize that and start to engage with it on that level and stop taking it all so literally, this is something he said over and over and over again. He wanted us to stop taking everything so literally and to allow ourselves to engage with the, our, our imaginal experience, both in ourselves and in the world, with a lighter touch that allowed it to have a, a metaphorical and symbolic uh, dimension to it on a regular basis, he really felt that that was the path towards, uh, towards healing and wholeness insofar as he, he believed wholeness was even possible, which is another, uh, conversation topic perhaps. Right. Um, so this is kind of a, we're at a point in the book where you shift, you've been doing kind of a history of the imagination. And at this point you switch to kind of the neuroscientific uh, stuff. So you start by talking about the binding problem and questions around multisensory processing. So can you kind of unpack what you're getting at here and what questions they raise around themes we've been talking about, about interpretation, mental representation, and imagination? Yeah, I guess I should, I, I'd like to preface this since we're switching gears a little bit here. Um, part of the reason I, I wrote the book this way is that as I said, I'm clearly concerned by reductionism, right? I'm concerned with a, a destructive reductionism that tries to take all the, the complex holes of reality and, and hammer them down just into their individual granular pieces. And so to avoid that in, in going into an examination of the neuroscience of imagination, I felt like, well, before I go there, let's start by really getting into this rich discourse on imagination in the humanities first. And to really, um, demonstrate the the breadth and, and complexity and richness and fullness of what imagination has meant to human beings uh, throughout our history. And then once we've done that, then let's look and see how is neuroscience doing with tackling something that is so big and complex and rich. So I, uh, then I started to do that from a number of different perspectives. And one of the ways I started to look at it was just the way that mental images appear in the brain. How, what do we know about that? How, how the brain works with uh, mental images and the way that that gets entangled with the way the brain processes perception. Uh, the fact that, for example, if you, um, if you see an apple, if you close your eyes and imagine the apple that you just saw, if you then six weeks later imagine uh, a similar apple, but now it's green, well, that's actually all happening primarily in the visual cortex. When we are engaged in looking at mental images, whether uh, they're memories, whether they are uh, new constructions, we're engaging the brain's sensory apparatus and uh, using the, our, our ability to make sense of the outside world with our perception, with our senses, to recreate uh, these new images, uh, these, these new models of, of, uh, you know, whether it's a model of, of something that exists in the world or whether it's, whether we're modeling something brand new, something totally, uh, totally our own creation, we can only do that by use of these sensory modalities. So that's where I began my examination of, of imagination in the brain is, is, uh, looking at the way that imagination and perception are, are really actually quite entangled on a neurological level. And uh, so your question was about the binding problem and, and multisensory processing. Uh, one of the things that's quite interesting about uh, multisensory processing is that the, we tend to think of our senses as being these distinct things, right? We're taught this from, from grade school on, at least I was, 
uh, you know, you, you've got your, your five senses, maybe sometimes there's a sixth, you know, that could be any, you know, uh, but if you actually get into the, the neurobiology of it, well, we have all kinds of different senses, you know, you've got like your sense of touch, but the tension of sense of touch is made up of any number of, um, individual factors, right? Individual sense receptors, you know, the, the way we sense vibration, for example, is a completely different sense receptor than the way we sense, uh, heat, um, uh, so, so there's more than five senses, first of all, but then in, in multisensory processing, we see that there's all of this cross networking going on between the different sensory systems, right? There's all this cross communication, uh, which is fascinating. And again, you know, we don't, I don't know that we really know what to, to, to make of this or what to do with it, that, that the brain seems to be so holistically engaged with itself on that level. But it does bring us to the question of the binding problem. And the, the binding problem, which is related to the, the, the conundrum of, of consciousness itself and, and where consciousness comes from, the binding problem is asking, how is it that all of this uh, sensory information coming into the brain and then being, you know, cross-referenced with memory and all of the other complicated things that happens, how does that actually emerge as a unified experience? How does it all actually bind together to become the whole that... Uh, that we are uh, experiencing as human beings. And that's a great question. It's, uh, it's something we still don't know how to answer in the same way that we don't really know how to answer uh, how, how consciousness exists in the brain, where, where consciousness really comes from. We can track with great precision, for example, we can see, you know, we've got uh, light coming in through the eyes, right? And we have all these uh, specific sense receptors within the eyes to, you know, picking up these different kinds of light and that all fires back. We can track this. We can look at the electrical impulses moving back through the optic nerve. We see them relaying at the thalamus and then, uh, you know, uh, going to the, the visual cortex to, to essentially be processed and, and interpreted. Uh, before then feeding forward into what eventually becomes a global experience of the the world that we're experiencing with our senses. But the question of how all of that becomes a unified whole, that's the binding problem. And that's that's a, a great mystery as far as I can tell. We, we really don't know how to answer that question. Yeah, so uh, kind of going along with that, um, you follow another neuroscientist, Stephen Koslin, uh, who argues that the brain stores descriptions rather than images. And you connect that to the ways in which our memories help us. Uh, memory not only exists in the past, but it actually helps us navigate and interpret our present. So how exactly does our brain function in these ways regarding interpretation? And what does it tell us about imagination's role in helping us navigate and make sense of the world? Um, I got a little distracted because I'm trying to think if that's their representation of, of Koslin. Um, I, you can correct me if I mis misunderstood something. Well, there's, there's been this long and uh, frankly, technical and esoteric debate about the way images work in the brain, um, which I, I don't, I don't really think is, is super interesting or worth getting into here, but um, what, what sort of emerged and this is not, it's not, it's not so much Koslin as it is more of like Koslin, like engaging with trying to help create a consensus around this. What Koslin talks about is that <clears throat> we have information stored in a, um, uh, in a, in a propositional manner in the brain. We have, uh, you know, like coded information about what uh, various facts and things. 
and that that information then gets um, pulled into the sensory systems. So, for example, you have a you have you have uh, information about uh, a can of tuna fish. I don't know all sorts of facts and and things about a can of tuna fish. That information gets recruited by the visual cortex in order for us to imagine that can of tuna fish, right? So it's not actually so the images aren't stored as images. We we store um, data as what is what is the word I'm looking for? Um, we store information as information, not as image per se, and then the information gets turned into image uh, in the in the sensory processing areas of the brain. That's that's what. Um, that's what Kosslyn is suggesting as a as the basic process of mental images coming into formation. That we we gather the information and then create the image out of that information in real time. Um, and so I think you also asked about memory, right? Kind of how it helps us navigate. Like it it isn't just past events. It's something that helps us navigate the present. Can you kind of unpack how that works? Well, sure. Um, memory from a there are many different kinds of memory. When, when we talk about the neuroscience of memory, um, we're talking about a lot of different things. And it's basically, uh, most broadly speaking, memory from a neuroscience perspective is any sort of um, information that we store about the world, including information around, you know, uh, how to how to ride a bike, even if we don't, you know, have that as a list of, of discrete facts. Um, any any sort of uh, any experience that leaves an impression that might uh, affect our, our future behavior is a, is a kind of memory, right? Uh, when, we, when we talk about memory on a more human level, we're usually talking about episodic memory specifically. And episodic memory is when we actually imagine um, scenes, right? Events from our lives, the, the sort of autobiographical uh, story of our lives. When we get into that, we're talking about episodic memory. But, but memory exists on these other levels as well, whether it's just memorizing facts or, um, or procedural memory about how to do something. And, um, how to do a task and so on and and so forth. The whole point of memory, from a you know a strictly biological point of view, you know from a from a Darwinian evolutionary point of view, is uh, to allow past experience to inform our future decisions, right? So uh, elephants, for example, have uh, well they have extraordinary memories in general, but uh, one thing they're known for is the fact that they they know where all the water holes are, right, all across vast uh, areas. And, and obviously you can see the evolutionary adaptability in that. If you know exactly where every, uh, waterhole is over hundreds and hundreds of miles, you're more likely to lead your, uh, your, your family of elephants to, uh, to water in a, in, in times of drought. So that's, um, given that that's the, the basic biological purpose of, of memory. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in strictly evolutionary biological terms here. Uh, it makes a lot of sense then that, the ways that um, memory affects us on a more cultural and individual level is going to follow that basic model. What this means for us, though, is that the the way uh, we experience the world in our perception, as I said earlier, there's this real entanglement that happens around perception and imagination because we use the same uh, architecture for both. And we also use the same architecture for memory. We, uh, if, if you have memories of, of specific images, um, you know, if you have memories of, of things that you've heard, um, they'll, they'll be uh, associated with those sensory areas. And so the process of m- remembering, perceiving, and imagining 
um, are much more closely related to each other in the brain than um, is maybe comfortable <laughs> for most of us to think about. Uh, and so for that reason, when we have, for example, you know, you can see uh, pretty extreme examples of it in, in PTSD, for example, uh, where someone has had a very traumatic experience and then something in present time triggers them. Maybe it's a loud noise or a scary looking man or something. And there's nothing actually threatening happening in the moment, but because of the intensity of the, the memory and the way memory is entangled with imagination and perception, simply having that sensory stimulus of the loud noise or this, or the, or the, you know, let's not even call him scary. Maybe he's just a tall man, right. With a dark beard. And that's terrifying. If you've had a a traumatic experience with someone who looks like that or with a dog, right. Um, people, uh, people have, uh, who've had bad experiences with dogs may, may be terrified of, of perfectly friendly, lovable dogs who just want to say hello. And in this case, what we're seeing is that the, the memory of what's happened is um, almost being re-experienced in present time. This is a really extreme example, but it it goes to show the degree to which part of what makes us human and part of what I think we have to contend with as humans is the degree to which our past experiences can shape our present perceptions. And if we're not careful and, and discerning and, and uh, thinking critically, it's very easy for us to simply fall into patterns of seeing what we expect to see based on past experience and uh, not being able to experience uh, new things, new possibilities, uh, new, new avenues of, of life, new avenues of self-development and so on. Yeah. So next you actually bring back uh, Hillman for a bit. You talk about his theory of anima mundi um, and you connect it to uh, personification, identifying with narratives, and you talk about how this can help us heal mentally and emotionally from trauma. You talk just now about PTSD. So can you kind of unpack what anima mundi is and how this personification kind of can help us heal or individuate? Yeah. And this is, um, this is stepping back a little bit to the previous discussion, um, I'll, I'll, I'll explain what it is and I'll try to explain why I started talking about it in, in the neuroscience section. So first of all, anima mundi um, actually comes from the ancient Greeks. It comes from uh, Neoplatonic thought, which is, uh, it was a expansion of, of Platonic philosophy that really uh, put image at the center of the whole universe, right? That, that uh, the whole universe was an emanation of divine images coming from the divine, essentially. And uh, so the, the anima mundi was the animate world. It was the world that was the, the living animate expression of images emanating from the divine mind, essentially. And so Hillman, um, Hillman takes this idea. And now it's important to remember that Hillman is now using it not metaphysically, but psychologically. But what Hillman is, is suggesting we do is allow for, allow for ourselves to imagine the world that way which is a little different from saying it is metaphysically so. I think that's an important distinction to make. Uh, rather, it's saying that if, if we can allow the world to become uh, uh, animate and alive with divine images, uh, it, it restores a level of meaning and enchantment to the world and in our everyday experience. Uh, all of a sudden, as we go through our days, we're not just seeing the the flat, dead world of material reality. 
we're, we're seeing a, a living psychic landscape that is um, bursting with meaning if we're willing to engage with it on that level. And that's really what he was advocating for. He was advocating for a, a real awakening of, of the imagination as a way of reinfusing the world with meaning. And again, this is, I, I do think it's an important distinction that, that this isn't necessarily a metaphysical move as much as a psychological one. It's, it's a way of uh, engaging with the world on a different level that allows it to become more alive, essentially. That's my understanding of, of what James Holman was doing and talking about the, the, the anima mundi or the world soul and, uh, and, and why we should return to it. Uh, from a, the reason I started talking about it at the end of the, the chapter on the neuroscience of perception and, and mental images is that to, to some extent, we are all living inside of an imaginal reality. Uh, our brains are taking in all of the sensory data, cross-referencing it with, with memory, and then uh, creating, uh, putting together a, an experience for us that is uh, based on the material world outside. Obviously, if it wasn't, we'd be in a lot of trouble. We wouldn't survive long, but is also totally integrated with and entangled with our, uh, our sense of psychological meanings and our, our cultural meanings. Uh, we're all inside of that. It's this idea that we, we are, we are actually inside of our own souls, experiencing our own interiority, even as we move through the world, something we, we, we don't often think about. We tend to, again, we tend to take everything around us totally literally. And this is what Hillman was, was getting at when he said, stop taking everything you experienced so literally. What if you take a step back? What if your experience of the world was a succession of, of meaningful images rather than always being a series of literal truths? what changes. And Hillman believed that this was uh, a profoundly uh, healing move for us to be able to re-engage with uh, all of the, all the possibility and potential for psychological meaning in our day-to-day existence that we've uh, become somewhat alienated from in in moving into a a much more uh, materialistic, rationalistic worldview. So I, I bring that up in the, in this chapter simply because I feel that there's a, there's a neurological basis for uh, suggesting that this is this is indeed the case that what what we are experiencing from a brain perspective is a a world that is uh, partially constructed based on imagination based on memory yeah so you move kind of following along those lines you start talking about creativity um you write about it as having a sort of backstage process where your brain is kind of working out an idea, often during a time you refer to as DMN or default mode network. Um, what is DMN and how does it help us with creative problem solving? So the 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 discourse on uh, the default mode network is not finished by by any means, and it's it's been um, interpreted a couple of different ways. What it is essentially is uh, the default mode network is is the the network of regions of the brain that go online when we're not externally focused on a task. So when when we're uh, moving into a state of daydreaming or or reverie, uh, there's this particular network that goes online, and it seems like the uh, the brain is starting to have a conversation with itself. For these these aspects of the brain are starting to have a conversation uh, with each other in this inner space that is not externally focused. 
which is it's it's a completely separate or, or largely separate network from the um, central ex- the, the executive network, which is the network that comes online when we are task focused and doing something in the external world. And then there's a salience network that uh, its job is to sort of balance between these two. How how much do we have an inward focus? How much do we have an external task oriented focus? So it's been posited. Uh, some some folks have gone so far as to say that uh, the the default mode network is the imagination network, or you know that it's it's absolutely essential to creativity because it's it's where we go to kind of play with possibilities and and turn ideas over and whatnot. Now there's not there's not consensus around that, but daydreaming is part of what happens in the default mode network. So then, if we move the conversation over to creativity, well, creativity. Uh, Part of what's important about creativity on a neurobiological level is making new connections. We make new connections between ideas, new connections between possibilities. When we're thinking outside the box, right, that's, that's the phrase we use to talk about a, a big creative idea. It's like we've gotten outside of the, the associations that we have around a particular problem and are suddenly able to make a new series of connections. So that association, that process of, of uh, connecting new ideas, new possibilities, uh, allowing that to emerge as a, a new road forward. Uh, that's um, one of the things that can help that is a, a process of, um, of, of daydreaming, a process of simply allowing ideas to engage and interact with one another and then allowing something new to emerge. And part of what this entails is that we're not always necessarily completely in control of that part of the process. We can be working on a problem uh, consciously, rationally, trying to solve it uh, for quite some time using the limited scope of our working memory to deal with the problem as we understand it. But at some point, if we can't find a solution, there's great benefit in being able to let go and allow the mind to move into a more associative space where new connections can be made. And that is, uh, that's where the default mode network is seen as being, uh, potentially quite important to the creative process. Yeah. So, um, you kind of distinguish a couple different forms of creativity because not all creativity is about just problem solving. Some of it, um, you talk about, uh, how it is about generating imaginal holes. What exactly is an imaginal hole and what does it tell us about imagination and creativity yeah so i um you know i i studied literature as an undergraduate and ended up writing a i did a second major in interdisciplinary studies and wrote a uh, my undergraduate thesis on on creativity and creativity has just it's something that um it's just been really important to me on a on both personally and professionally and something that's fascinating and uh and inspiring to me and so as i as i started to engage with the way neuroscience talks about creativity, I was very curious to see uh, how they talked about it, how much, uh, how much it was going to get reduced. Uh, And of course it was going to have to get reduced some because that's, you know, you've got to be able to reduce a phenomenon sufficiently to to study it in a way that counts as scientific. You know, you've got to actually be able to look at, at discrete phenomena that are measurable. So, when I start to talk about imaginal holes in the book, what I, here's what I'm getting at. It's that so much of the neuroscience of creativity is, is looking at a more, um, a simpler kind of process. 
like making new associations. Uh, there's a there's a variety of theories about how new uh, new associations get made that might lead to a, a new idea or a new solution to a problem. Uh, or, you know, even if it, in the arts, maybe you get, you get a new idea for what you want to paint or, or maybe a, a new solution to the direction the plot of your book should go. Uh, fair, right? And that's all, that's all important research. And there's some, some very compelling um, theories and compelling evidence in that space. But it still doesn't quite get at, um, the again, the fullness and richness and complexity of the creative experience as uh, experienced by uh, creative artists, for example. Um, and, you know, there, there have also been some moments in, uh, in the history of science where there's just been like a, wow, lightning strikes, um, something, something just emerges in the mind of a scientist and they, they have a whole new conception of, of, uh, of the, the field that they're, that they're working in. And that is something that neuroscience hasn't really been able to address in quite the same way. Um, it's it's a lot harder to understand where that comes from. Uh, this is where we get back to this idea of uh, the the emergent properties of of brains when when something when all the little pieces are are interacting together in this sort of unimaginable complexity, and then from it something new emerges that you couldn't have predicted, right? So uh, artists will talk about, writers will talk about, and this is something I've experienced myself, you get into a, a, a flow state where something just seems to be coming through with a, uh, a whole paragraphs emerging at a time um, or, or a, a whole rich, complex vision or uh uh, for for a work of art or or the experience of of moving so deeply into a, the process of writing a, a novel or a screenplay that it really starts to feel like you're you're there and that you're not really controlling the characters so much as just kind of listening in on their their conversations. Um, that kind of creativity, the, that level of of immersion in in the emergence of something that feels so rich and full is harder to explain on a, a neurobiological level. And uh, I think it's important that we, we honor that that is something that artists experience. And not just that it's something that artists experience, but that it's, um, it's one of the principal reasons artists make art, because it, it feels, uh, for, for many of us, deeply meaningful to um, engage in a creative process where our ego kind of moves to the side and we're, we're participating in the creation of something new rather than uh, simply tinkering away at the solution to a problem. Yeah. So kind of wrapping things up, one of the things I found really interesting in your kind of more synthetic approach between humanities and neuroscience um, is how you see science and culture influencing each other in theories of the imagination. Um, so a passage you quote in your book um, reads, uh, the water technology of antiquity underlies the Greek concept of the soul. The clockwork mechanisms proliferating during the Enlightenment are ticking with seminal influence inside Le Maitre's Léon machine. Victorian pressurized steam engines and hydraulic machines are churning underneath Freud's hydraulic construction 
of the unconscious in its libidinal economy. The arrival of the telegraph network provided by Helmholtz with his basic neural metaphor, as did reverberating relay circuits and solenoids for Hebb's theory of memory and so on. So kind of looking at this passage, how does this history of parallels between science and broader culture help us think more critically and more deeply about science in general and more specifically contemporary neuroscience around the imagination? So in that particular uh, section where I quote that passage, which I, I, I just love that. It's such a, it's such a great window into the way our, our understanding of the world shapes, you know, the, the way we investigate things. Um, I was looking at the way we've created images and metaphors essentially as models for, for the mind models for the brain as, as time has gone on. And that what I'm getting at, first of all, to recognize that our understanding of the brain, our understanding of the mind uh, has evolved over time. That we've had these different images uh, that have have seemed right to us, these, these different metaphorical models that have seemed right to us to a point, but they're always getting replaced as we get new information. Uh, and part of the fascination of this is to see how each one, each one of these models. Uh, as, I, as I said earlier on in the conversation, each one of these models is useful to a point, right? We can, we can recognize uh, some aspects of each of these models as being useful. You know, the, the computer model, which is still, uh, you know, quite popular, uh, covers a lot of ground in terms of uh, what, our, what our brains do and what our minds do. But uh, does it cover everything? Well, uh, not if we're going to take complexity science seriously. And if we take complexity science seriously... Well, then what's, what's happening is, um, I think this is also a quote in the book, that, that uh, what's happening in the brain is more akin to uh, what happens in a hurricane or a star than what happens in a, uh, a computer, uh, or certainly at least that there's a, 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 a star-like quality to our brains and to our minds in the same way that there's a computer-like quality or a computer-like aspect to, to our, our brains and minds and what they do. So part of looking at this history and seeing the evolution is, first of all, just be willing to have a little bit of humility around the fact that probably there will be more models, right? We, we don't necessarily have it completely nailed down. And that's okay, that we are, are doing our best uh, with the resources available to us, not just the scientific resources, but also the, the cultural resources that we use to make meaning of science um, and, and that undergirds science in some ways, that, you know, the things we choose to study, uh, the things we choose to research in science are going to be driven by cultural factors uh, as well. And that's, that just means we're human. It doesn't, um, it doesn't, I, I feel like I've got to be very careful about this because I, I really love science. I think science is so important and it's, it's something that really needs to be uh, honored and respected. And also honoring and respecting something uh, doesn't mean that we just let it uh, have total and complete authority over us when it itself uh, may have some important limitations, which we should keep in mind. So I, I wish we were able to have a conversation about this um, without it becoming so polarized. You know, I, I, as soon as I start to criticize um, 
or, or point out, just point out the limitations of, of science and, or that science is influenced by cultural factors. I, I immediately feel like I'm going to get pigeonholed into, uh, the, you know, a lot of the anti-scientific sentiment that, that we are unfortunately seeing in our world, you know, for example, the, um, the current denial of, of climate science, which frankly is, I, I just think it's, it's tragic and terrifying that, that we're not respecting what, uh, a, a great consensus of scientists are telling us about something that's so important. Um, and, uh, as much as I feel that way, I think both things are true. I think that we, we must respect, uh, are, are climate scientists and take them seriously and scientists in general. And we can also recognize that science is a human activity. There are human factors that influence it. There are cultural factors that influence it. And we should be mindful about that. Uh, and I think doing so will actually make our science better, not, not worse. But as you can tell, I'm just, I'm, I feel like I got to tread very carefully when it comes to this particular topic. Yeah. So that is great. That kind of brings us to the, End of the book. So kind of as a final question, uh, what, if anything, are you working on now? Um, well, I'm someone with uh, diverse interests, so I'm working on all sorts of different things. Um, I'm not working on another academic book at the moment. Uh, I think the, the two things I'm most interested in uh, pursuing in terms of um, academic research and writing, um, really interested in the way human beings deal with complexity and the way that we... Uh, we certainly seem to have a lot of evidence that the world is incredibly complex in on many different levels. Um, and yet we still want to, we still have this impulse to default towards reductionistic stories on, on many different levels. So I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to really get into that and write a book about that at some point in the next few years. I'm also uh, really deeply interested in um, human relationships with animals and in particular human relationships with other, other intelligent species, uh, species that seem to have, um, complex elements of culture, you know, elephants, for example, um, uh, the great apes, um, dolphins and, and cetaceans. I'm really interested in the way that, that human beings engage with these other intelligent species and, and the way we've uh, tried to communicate with them and tried to understand them and how, how that process has evolved. So that's, that's another research area that I, I hope to write about in the years to come. In the meantime, I'm actually writing a uh, uh, bit of science fiction. I, I have a couple of science fiction books I, I published this year, and I've got a, a collection of short stories uh, uh, published last year. I've got a collection of short stories coming out this year and uh, more, more of that to come, hopefully. So that's a, a totally, totally different topic. But I, I think uh, anyone who's familiar with my academic work uh, we'll see elements of it emerging in the science fiction as, as well. And that's, that's a way where I get to a place where I get to walk my talk a little bit about um, the, the, the work of imagination and the importance of it and, and the way imagination allows us to, to imagine ourselves, um, to, to, to examine and, and experience new possibilities for, for who we are and what we might be. Yeah. You seem to really love to kind of move around and try different things. So uh, Jonathan Erickson, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.